Hello, and welcome to the UX Hustle Podcast. I'm so excited because today's episode is with Havana Wen. Havana is a senior user experience designer who specializes in design ops, interaction design, usability testing, and product discovery. She has done UX for healthcare, aerospace, human capital management, and other enterprise SaaS products. To advance the UX community, she leads Ladies That UX Atlanta and has written for UX Design Collective and UX Planet. When she's not doing UX, she is the lead character artist on the award-winning graphic novel series, Kamikaze. You can find her art and work at HavanaWen.com. So today, I talk with Havana about how to rock your first UX role. We discuss how to handle a seemingly dysfunctional organization, the importance of mentorship, and how to make the most of being the newbie at any organization so that you can stand out in a good way. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to the UX Hustle podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Worthington. The goal of UX Hustle is to help UX designers design the career they love, maximizing the benefit of this multifaceted industry and strong community. We talk about what's really going on in UX and what it's like working in it, and interview people that are actively navigating their careers and UX. We don't expect to have all the answers, but we do keep searching, keep listening, and learning. Because at the end of the day, you are the user of your career. Well, welcome to the UX Hustle podcast. I'm so excited to have Havana Wen with me. Havana, how are you? (laughs) I'm great. I'm glad to be on here. I've actually been on UX Hustle once upon a time back when Sophia was hosting it. I think I was like episode number two or three. Oh my gosh, how full circle. Um, But yeah, so I'm glad to be back. Oh, yay. (laughs) Well, happy to have you back while we're under new management over here. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So Havana, tell me a little bit about where you're at in your career right now Mm -hmm. and how how did you get into UX? Yeah, I would love to. So uh, I'm a senior UX designer. I have worked in so many different enterprise SaaS teams like for aerospace, healthcare, real estate lending, you name it. I've had a lot of experiences. Before UX, I was in sales. I was in customer uh, implementations. So um, I have a very checkered past. (laughs) I got into (laughs) UX uh, about six years ago. And uh, I was actually a customer implementations specialist at the moment. I really liked that job. uh, But there came a time where, uh, you know, you and I are similar in that we're type A, we're planners, we want to know what you know, where we're heading. And I just did not know where I was heading. I knew that, Mm. I mean, the customer support job was fine. I liked solving hard problems. I liked the interaction piece of it. I liked interacting with the engineers to help solve problems. I didn't know what my next step was. So what I did was I interviewed, I think it was my boyfriend who suggested, hey, you should look into UX design. <laughs> and so I did a bunch of research and, you know, I I am actually self-taught. Uh, and I got my first job in 2016 and here I am today. <laughs> oh my gosh. Isn't it funny when our significant others point things out like that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, uh, my significant other and I have been together for 16 years now. <laughs> and like, he, sometimes he knows me more than 
I know myself. And so sometimes it's nice to have that objective view of yourself. And um, yeah, he keeps me grounded. I understand that. Well, I had my fiance on the podcast a couple weeks mm-hmm. back talking about yeah. my transition from his perspective, which uh-huh. was very interesting. Really? <laughs> like, interesting. Definitely the the both sides of the coin of like, oh, it's so great to have someone with such a like grounded perspective and also, huh, that's what you think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that yeah, good point. Um sometimes sometimes it's a hit and sometimes it's a miss. Uh and <laughs> You know, even with those misses, I'm like, what am I doing to give this impression? <laughs> right, right, right. And it's like, right. oh, that's so interesting the way you see me versus how I see me. Or even like people in my industry see me. Huh? Oh, yes. When Absolutely. versus he's totally outside of the tech world. So it's like, oh, oh yes. what do you think I do? Yes. Especially <laughs> people who don't do UX, always very fascinating with what they think I do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, speaking of UX and outside of UX, Mm -hmm. you know, senior UX designer is not your only title. Nope, it is not. (laughs) I am also the lead character artist for an award-winning graphic novel series called Kamikaze. Uh, We've been out since 2014, but I've been working on it for a full 10 years now. Wow. And uh, we have a couple of published or self-published books out. Um, We're on I think like a volume four or something, but it's been a, that's a webcomic that's been releasing every Wednesday uh, without fail for the past seven years, which is really exciting. Wow. Recently. Yeah. Recently, we also partnered with Echo Bridge Pictures. Um, They created an animated pilot, um, a short film, and we got to feature that at uh, the Georgia, what was it? Georgia Film Festival. It's a Georgia Film Festival. And we won an award. How crazy is that? That's awesome. (laughs) That's so cool. Yeah. And outside of that, I am the uh, lead organizer of Ladies That UX, uh, the Atlanta chapter. Uh, I, uh, what else? I'm a writer for UX Planet, UX Design Collective. I'm formally now, well, I'm transitioning out of this role, but I'm also one of the directors at MomoCon and public speaker and artist, all that. <laughs> I know it's like and podcast. Oh host. yeah! Oh thank God! Thank you, Amanda. I'm also a podcast host no of uh, two podcasts. Actually, there's the Blue Society where we go over uh, Don Blue's signature animated films, and then uh, I am also the host of Make It Happen with Havana. I call it a Activity self-help uh, podcast, but our topics range from financial debt to gender identity to body image to you know um, career. And so it's kind of all <laughs> awesome. No, I love that, and I know. So y- you know, you're a hardcore Havana fan when you're like, yes, I know about the Don Bluth. Yeah, um, that was deep cut. I was deep cut. <laughs> I knew. And I was yeah. like, who's Don Bluth? So for those that don't know, who's Don Bluth? <laughs> uh, so he used to be an animator at this, and then he broke off to form an animation studio. Um, he is the person behind All Dogs Go to Heaven, Bumbelina, Anastasia, 
Uh, you have seen his movies before if you're into animation. But yeah. <laughs> yes. Beautiful. Because I watched, I go through like the Disney documentaries. <laughs> and so that's how I knew who Don Bluth was. And oh, I was perfect. like, Havana. That's how I know about it originally. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm honored. Thank you. I, I was very impressed with when you uh, reference that. Hey, this is a note about networking and yeah. <laughs> paying attention to things. Go to people's websites. You know, that's a that's really, how I knew. That's what it was. That's a really good point. Uh, that is an easy way to stand out. In fact, so uh, I, I mentioned that I am on the Momocon staff. So I organized the department uh, of moderators. So my team... We're the people who interview and introduce and um, host the panels, the uh, voice actors that they have as guests there. So we're kind of like providing the entertainment. And I remember we had one moderator who was interviewing this game reviewer, uh, Biscuit, and she did deep research, found out that he used to into metal music and she asked a ton of questions about metal and he was just so full and so i i say that to say like yes do your deep research you'll be surprised at how uh impressed <laughs> someone will be <laughs> well and it's it reminds me of hot ones the oh, YouTube show he's a great oh, interviewer like, He's a great interviewer, and it's because he does the research yeah. and asks the questions that people don't always ask. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think about all the time. I'm like, okay, yes, that. He, how do we? How do we do that? Yeah, he's great. Yeah, and like as uh, on my work at MomoCon, that's all we do, right? We're trying to come up with interviews, and we do study a lot of the panels and interviews that happen at San Diego Comic Con, New York Comic Con. Uh, to see, like, what can we bring to the table? So I always mm -hmm. encourage my team to, like, think of, like, new and interesting questions. Mm, I love that. So getting back to UX now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, could you tell us a little bit about your first UX role and what that experience was like? So getting your first UX job is very difficult. I always tell aspiring people like that first in is going to be the hardest part. After that, it becomes very easy. But uh, getting that first UX was hard because I got rejected nine places uh, before finally getting my first job. And I mean, but I've also known people who have looked for a year or 18 months, um, I mean, job search can be really competitive, and it's hard to get your first job if you don't have formal experience, right? So, I learned a lot during my job search, um, like, in, in terms of how to interview. So, I think on my YouTube channel, I have a lot of uh, advice about how to interview, how to frame your stories, so that you stand out in people's minds and also frame your own experience in a way that connects the dots for people. Like, well, how does my work in customer support relate to this? Sometimes the interviewer, the hiring manager needs a little bit of help trying to connect those, that, those dots. Um, so my first 
job was at a consumer insurance company. It wasn't a space that I was particularly excited about, but I just needed a UX job, right? So at my first job, the company was over a century old. It was not originally a software company. It's consumer insurance. And when I say that, I mean like, you know how you buy a washer or you buy a cell phone and like, would you like a two-year protection plan? That's right. what I was working on. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they were spinning up like an innovation set downtown and I got to join. Um, and I can speak a little bit more about how I approached that for that interview. But I worked there and it was like, it was very eye-opening. And we'll get more into this. But like, I had in my head a perfect UX design process where it starts with generative research and then, uh, you, know, you know, the double diamond of refining uh, like requirements, designing, prototyping, testing, validation, development, delivery. They did not do all of that. <laughs> like, in fact, because it was over a century old, and a lot of legacy processes, legacy infrastructure. It's just like a tumble of that UX had to really slice through. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of bureaucracy, lots of people who didn't know how technology worked, uh, and very, very old school office politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And I, fe- I, I imagine like with like talking about the double diamond approach and all the steps that we go through. And especially at that point in your career, it sounds like it was like, you know, these are the steps and we, they are all required. Mm -hmm. Right. We must go through each step. We must do this the right way. Otherwise. Yeah. What was the whole point of all of this? Exactly. And I think, okay. So the other real first job was that I was basically given the task of just mocking up, uh, doing mockups for the sales team. So the sales team would need to sell mm. our goods and services to clients. And part of the sales pitch was they wanted my mockups in their pitch deck to show what, what this company could do for you, right? And because I was, this is my first time in a UX role, I'm ju- everyone else was see. I like welcomed all that. I was like, okay, this isn't like the perfect experience. I'm basically doing spec work for sales, but let me get as much experience out of this as I can. Let me do as much of the UX stuff for each and every one of these little pitch projects as I can. And by the end of it, I had a surplus of examples for my portfolio, actually, which was the opposite mm-hmm. problem that I had going into my first job, where like I don't have enough case studies, I don't have enough in my portfolio. <laughs> right. No, and that makes so much sense. And I think that's such a great approach of, you know, whatever is coming your way, of saying, "Let me UX this," yeah, <laughs> and let me think of the process and have that in mind. And make sure that I'm getting the value that I need to get out of this experience. Absolutely. I think, so I mentor a lot of aspiring UX people. Mm -hmm. One of the things that has really jumped out at me is people are all up in my inbox when they're trying to look for work. But then as soon as they land that first job, 
it's uh, not that they go silent, but they just drop off. And mm-hmm. it surprises me because, man, during your first job is when you need the mentorship most because you're in a new job that's requiring you to do things you've never done before, requiring you to come up with things like uh, like you've never been in this space. So for me, uh, luckily, I had a lot of the great people who wanted to mentor me. And so throughout the week, I would actually ping them on LinkedIn like, hey, uh, my boss just asked me to do a heuristic evaluation. What is that? <laughs> like my mentors could actually point me to the right direction, right resources for me to kill it at my first job. And yeah, I just it was just so powerful. Um, I really feel like getting that mentorship during your first job is such a critical role and like you can really maximize your time. The other thing I did at my first job is I became such a knowledge sponge. Okay. Like I was in constant conversation and like shadowing every other UX designer and another piece of advice I had always gotten in my career is if you want to really master your job, Get to know the step before your part and the step after. Another thing I did, which I do know that barely anyone else on the UX team did, was I started setting up calls with the business analysts. Because I learned that the business analysts were the ones creating the software, the project requirements. And then sales, of course, they were also coming up with what I should design for their pitch decks. So I actually like sat down with them. And I try to fully understand the process of their job. So like sales is creating all these requirements for my pitch mockups. But where do those come from? Does that come from market research? Like where does that market research come from? Mm-hmm. How did you determine what's going to be the most appealing to your client? How do you actually sell my mockup in these meetings? Uh, with the business analyst, like what kind of research went into these requirements? Does it? system requirements does that go through different iterations How, what's that process like etc and then same with the engineers as well for me engineering was still such a like a black box to me and i remember i sat down with one of the front end devs that i started chatting up in the lunchroom and i just asked him can i just like sit behind you and watch how you turn a photoshop mock-up into a web page and that was so powerful because now i know exactly <laughs> how he needs the assets to be organized how the like how to best name them so we can do his job um it was really interesting and i always advise people like get to know the step before your part and the step after your part Oh, that's so valuable. And, like, yeah. understanding that. Yeah, take advantage of the fact that you are new. So I love being, like, the plucky new kid. Like, you know, that was my first UX job. Can you help me understand? Like, people <laughs> love, like, just, like, taking me under their wing and help me. That's really, um, I use that to my advantage. That's so interesting because I feel like, to me, my thought was, I feel like in my first roles, I was, I was so afraid to ask. I was so afraid of showing that. That you didn't know something. I mean, showing that I was new. 
Okay, you know, you know what? The reason why is because of two things. Uh, number one, I had an incredible intern opportunity when I was in college at this very highly coveted advertising. And they work on huge brands. I could not believe I landed an internship there. Not only was I interned there, I was also the only patient. Okay. Wow. And then I got fired from that internship. And the reason why I got fired, one of the pieces of feedback that they gave me was, it just didn't seem like you were really interested. In... What? What do you mean? Because I was like so hyped to be there. And she said, well, you just never ask questions. And mm. that was like such an enlightenment in my head because they know I'm an intern. They know I've never done this before. And yet, I was afraid of see, coming off like, oh, well, I, I, I was afraid of coming off like I didn't know anything. Because in my head, if they hired me to do this job. I need to know what the hell I'm doing. Right. But actually, the fact that I didn't ask questions was what made me come off like very apathetic. And then later, fast forward, I, um, the customer support job that I had with the software company, I was in a role where I was training people. The people who did not ask questions, I was just raising an eyebrow because, like, the project we were working on is really complex, very compliance heavy, very logic heavy. And so the people that I trained, the end of the day, or at the end of the training session, I would ask, so I know I gave you a lot. Do you have any questions? And the people who did not ask questions, always the worst performers. Mm -hmm. So then I took the lessons from those two experiences, kind of, kind of transplanted to uh, my first UX role. So all of a sudden, yeah, I was trying to be strategic. I think there's a balance. What I, my method of asking questions is collect all the questions and then ask them in bulk instead of like asking one off questions throughout the because it becomes very disruptive to the other. So I like to like collect all my questions and then ask them in like one sitting. Um, that seems to, you know, take off better. <laughs> that's a good point. That's a really good idea. And I think that's a good point with even just how we approach that job search of that first role of yeah. like, you're not trying to trick anyone no, <laughs> into thinking that you have more experience than you do. You're just trying to be more accurate with the experience that you do have. Yes, exactly. And especially because the some of the new UX designers I've spoken with will sometimes discount their past experience. Oh my god! Or like, just nuts. I know, and like, or or they haven't made that connection that you mentioned at the beginning of how do yeah. I tell that story so that a hiring manager connects the dots? But mm -hmm. I think even before that, you have to know that there are dots to be connected. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. I I feel like you know when you're interviewing for a job, your other candidates are UX people. So you need some way to stand out. For me, that's my past experience, you know? Uh, so like, 
for example, I could be interviewing two aspiring UX people, and one used to be an attorney, one used to be an engineer. How awesome, like for me, it's like, whoa, okay, I've got like two really cool Pokemon with different stats. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I need to figure out like, okay, man, should I choose the fire type? Should I choose the water type? <laughs> By the way, y'all, I'm a big nerd, so. Y'all, if none of you set up your portfolio to look like a Pokemon card, I'll be very upset. Also, if you do that, tag us on Instagram. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. I would love to see it. Yeah, and uh, I think, you know, gonna go against use what you got. That's your superpower. Use what you got already in your belt because that's probably gonna be that makes you stand out. And in fact, um, my illustration skills is what made me really stand out because people were like, oh, she could do storyboards. She could uh, help create accents for interface. Uh, like, but another UX designer might not have illustration skills. You know, that's just going to be one more special ability that I have. No, that's such a great point. And I'm wondering too, like, what were, for getting that first UX role and going through that job search, what were some of the things that helped you? Or even with the designers that you talk with now, what are some of the things that you see help people stand out? Mm, yeah, um, bringing up your past experiences. I, I think framing it in a way that's going to make immediate sense to the interviewer. And I say immediate sense is that it's because you're not going to have a lot of time with this person. You have maybe 30 minutes and an hour. And believe it or not, that's not a lot of time to really convey everything that you can offer. So, for example, um, when I first interviewed for CX job, I remember my interviewer, the hiring manager, asked me, so what experience, like, have you had any, uh, have you ever had to create an experience for a user, like, Tell me a little bit about what you know about user experience. And I told him, okay, just bear with me for a little bit. But honestly, the answer that comes up in mind is was a barista at Starbucks. The reason why is because, believe it or not, there are a lot of people who have never been to a Starbucks before that walk in every day. And they get really overwhelmed by the menu. They don't know these terms, venti, trenta, macchiato, what is this? And I realized there was a pattern. Some, a lot of the first times were ordering drinks and then making like a fate, like scratching up their feet, like, oh my God, this is so bitter. Why do people like Starbucks? Like they just didn't understand the appeal of Starbucks. But then I realized it was because they were ordering a cappuccino. Now, if you've never been to a Starbucks or if you're not really familiar with coffee and espresso drinks, um, people probably experience a cappuccino through quick trip or a grocery store and like you get the french cappuccino powder that you can mix with water um so they like the like the, that cream taste with a little bit of coffee that's actually a latte so when people would come in and say mm -hmm. oh, i've never been here i started asking a series of questions like okay do you like the taste of coffee or like something more sweet uh do you 
like? Uh, do you want something hot or do you want something cold? You want something like shaking up like a smoothie or do you want like something over ice? And like through these series of questions, I could figure out the exact drink that they wanted. And then it just resulted in much better experience with people like, oh my God, what is this called again? All right, I'm ordering this next time. And so, uh, and so I told this kind of opened my eyes to crafting these experiences because number one, I got a customer from Starbucks. And then also, like, I, I had to observe why people reacting to cappuccino the way they react. Oh, that's such a great example. And that <laughs> obviously stands out. Right. But the thing is, if I just said, you know, I, I, uh, I learned a lot about user experience through my time at uh, Starbucks serving coffee to first timers. Mm. So like for an interview where they're probably like, huh, what? <laughs> Did she pay attention to the question? <laughs> like you have that. This is the thing I tell people, you have to connect it for them. But you also, as you said, need to recognize that there are dots to connect. Another thing, like, think about something might be really obvious to you, but it might not be obvious to the entire uh, I had another mentee who worked as a QA for games, like video games, mm -hmm. and she was trying to get into UX. Now, for me, personally, I see video games as, like, the pinnacle of UX because you're not trying to just drive me. You're also trying to elicit emotion. Like there's a lot more um, attention to affordances because like you can't interact with every single item in a game, but you have to make it clear what you can interact with. So to me, it's very clear that video games are obviously like, uh, it involves a lot of UX concepts, but to a hiring manager who doesn't know anything about that, not gonna understand that video games has that connection. Right. Right. So you have to connect the dots for them. And especially those complexities that are gonna be missed just because you didn't you didn't emphasize them. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. So I'm curious <laughs> with like for you, how has your career changed over time? You kind of alluded to you know, that first role was really challenging. And then after that, it got a little easier. Could you speak to that? Yeah. So my other thing about uh, first job is that it was a very dysfunctional work environment. I'm sure it's grown and evolved since then. So please don't let that reflect on the company. But at the time, it was extremely dysfunctional. And that actually excited me because to me, you can learn so much more from a dysfunctional work environment than a fully functional one. And I hear this from my mentees a lot, where if they're in a first job where the stakeholders are extremely difficult, they're not getting to work on the exact projects they want, they don't have access to users. Sometimes it can be a big slap in the face to a lot of these first timers and they get discouraged. They start wondering, Oh, is UX for me? Is this what the industry? And to those people, I always uh, encourage, like, just learn from what you can from this dysfunctional environment 
and carrying those lessons somewhere else. Because for me, it was really helpful to learn all things not to do or like all the ways, all the hurdles that Wex can run into. Luckily, my second job was in a very functional place where we had a bigger design team. We had research. We had unmoderated tests, moderated tests. We had all kinds of methodologies being like worked out. Uh, we had, I mean, it was just such a much more mature Wex organization. And like, luckily that really worked out for me because now I had not just examples of how dysfunctional an organization could be. Now I had an example of what worked well. And I, I mean, I'm so thankful that those were my first two experiences. <laughs> and I still reference both of those jobs even today. When work. Um, I, and, and I also see like that fun dysfunctional uh, environment. I was able to, well, but number one, I'm able to spot red flags uh, in an interview, things like that. But also, I see what the obstacles are. And actually, if you go to my YouTube channel, you will see a video called The Things I Wish I Knew Before We Go Into UX. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Because I think that's the thing, like, with when we're thinking about those dysfunctional aspects, or even when you're when you're put in a place where all of the UX foundation has been built and secured, you miss all the effort and planning and yes. conversations and arguments <laughs> that mm -hmm. went into making it that way. Absolutely. I feel like if I started super functional uh, UX organization right off the bat, I would have only known how to do my sliver of work. I wouldn't have, how did they even build this process? How, how did they overcome hurdles? How did they win this over with product and C-level engineering? How did they build the partnership with engineering? You know, like those are all things that were worked out before. And luckily in that first job, um, I was able to, well, here's an example of the lesson that first job. Engineering always was able to just go ahead and build the product. They didn't need designers to tell them what to do. They didn't need designers to be the bottleneck. They just were able to march forward and build whatever the business analyst told them to do. So, um, I realized this when okay. I talked to a lot of the engineers. And to me, it was like surprising, like, what? Why wouldn't you want UX Like, I don't understand. And because to me, it's so obvious that users should be top priority, right? Well, I was talking to the engineers and I realized like this is now just another step to them. It just sounded like we're injecting more bureaucracy. Right, right. And so instead, I tried to understand like first shadow that front end dev and see how he actually puts together a web page and then started working with him, started partnering very closely with him on like exactly what he needed. And the lesson I learned from that experience is like, okay, you have to involve engineers early. 
So I started having him come with me to the whiteboard. Like, hey, I know that you're used to coding, but let's like just sketch out what this site and how the site's supposed to behave together. And from that point on, like he loved working with me. I love working with him. We made things happen very fast. Uh, and I don't think I would have learned that if I was in a fully functional place where engineers were already playing nice with them. <laughs> right. And I think there's so much personal skill and interpersonal skills required. Because yeah. as UX designers, we are sitting in the middle mm-hmm. of a lot of things. Oh, and especially for organizations where they didn't need that. And how do you show the value and build those relationships over time? Yeah. And so now the thing that makes me really effective at work is now I know, okay, who's who are the engineers I need to make friends immediately? So, yes, um, I know at Honeywell, uh, you know, there are parts of that organization where it was very engineer driven, too. And so mm-hmm. without even thinking about it, I just went ahead and like I, I went so far as to actually invite engineers to some of the field studies I was doing. So I, this was oh, that's awesome. my time in the aerospace division. And we got to visit the private jet hangars around Atlanta, do some like field study. And I asked an engineer, hey, I really want at least one dev to come along with me on each of these field studies. And all of the engineers were so confused. Like, what? Why? You're taking time away from coding? Like, I don't understand the purpose of this. And so I said, just come along. <laughs> so I brought on, on these engineers and like immediately, they were, first, uh, there were a couple of things that came. First, they felt very invested in the users because they get to see and meet and talk to the users directly. They also got to see the environment that uh, these users are working in. So they know more about technology than I do. So they were able to propose solutions that I would have never thought of. Like they knew about open source chatbots that maybe we could use in the product. They knew about like machine learning things that we could implement. So it's like, holy crap. Like I would not have come up with that if it wasn't for them sitting here seeing the environment. This other thing is that then once we got to work on uh, designing and development, it was no longer just me advocating for the users. It was also developers who, okay, it was like music to my ears when I overheard (laughs) a discussion of developers and one of the developers literally said, you're not thinking about the users, man. We need to prioritize users it's like that all happened within the first 30 60 days of my employment that's there. awesome yeah so like that's awesome all the lessons that you could learn from functional work environment it's going to make you unstoppable in the future because now you already know how to solve the problem well and i think that's a great point too of even when you are at a ux mature company and organization, that doesn't mean that there aren't those (laughs) gaps behind the scenes a little bit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And like, when you have that experience, you're able to build those relationships, invite invite people along and kind of prevent or or really continue that progress and continue that maturity. Yeah, definitely. There's always going to be issues. Like recently, I've been talking to some people who work at the um, Fang companies, 
uh, the big, big tech companies. And I asked them, what's your favorite thing about working at this company? What's your least favorite? And all the fan companies you would imagine, very, very high UX maturity level. And then the answers I got for the, um, the things they didn't like about those places, the same exact problems. Same type of problems like, oh, well, mm -hmm. sometimes we don't get to do as much user research as we want to. Sometimes we're just like so deadline driven. Oh, engineering will really lead the charge on this one product. Like, it's all the same problem. <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting. It just makes me spot the problem pretty quickly. Like, I can very quickly solve the problems, which is nice. And I, again, I don't think I would have been able to do that if I didn't have those first initial experiences. Right. Another, oh, another uh, dysfunctional place I was at, uh, I would have never known that this was an actual problem until I actually was there. But we had multiple products, right? There was like a full product suite. I was like, and I was building like a new product as part of the product suite. The problem was, all of the products are on a single code base. So, of mm. course, from a, when I first learned, like, I would have never thought that that was a problem. Like, oh, okay, sounds more efficient? Uh-oh. <sighs> but then when I actually was designing, I realized any small change we made on our end is going to break the flagship product. But then right. the flagship product, their product team could do anything, even though it <laughs> messed us up. So, like, having this huge everything on the same code base, now I see is also a problem. So then, now that I know that and I'm exposed to why that's important, now in the future, one of the things I do ask on interviews with engineers is, like, is your code modular or is it all on the same code base? Right. How would I have known that if I didn't work at that point? And and you wouldn't. And I think that's what's so interesting about our careers. And and I don't think this is unique to UX. I'm trying to think. It probably is not. Of as we go through from one job to the next or through one project to the next even, we're learning about ourselves and we're learning about the organization and oh, we're yeah. learning new things. Of like, what can we handle? What do we need more help with? What's a negotiable and what's a non-negotiable? And then we're able to move forward and make better decisions. Yeah, yeah but, uh, absolutely. Like now I know <laughs> when I'm in an interview, people always uh, comment on how pointed my questions are, like the code base problem, like thing. Mm -hmm. I remember interviewing at Honeywell and like the engineer was like, Wait, why is that important? And then I told him, <laughs> like, oh, okay. Well, we're working toward being modular. And like, like it, uh, but again, I don't think he would have, he did if I wasn't exposed to these experiences. So as much as you're learning about organizational dysfunction, like good processes, all that. You're also learning about yourself, what your red flags are, how do you best thrive, what animates you. Um, and I, I have like, I'm very, very direct about like what I'm looking for. <laughs> and the other thing is like, people have this weird expectation that they're supposed to stay at the first job for like three or five years. That is so not true. I was at my first job 
for six months. And not by, I didn't, I didn't plan to be there for only six months, but a recruiter called and she was like, I mean, I, I have an opportunity for you and it is so perfect for you. I promise you, I promise you this is such a good culture fit. I can't think of anyone else in my candidate network that would be a great fit for this. And like, I got a call and yeah, the rest is history, but that worked out for me, you know, like I, it's not like now people look at, why were you only at your first job for six months? <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think that is a real fear that people have of, I know for me coming from the consulting world, it was, I mean, that was the expect that was the expectation going in. We all started out of college on the same day and we looked at each other and went, well, we're here for at least three years. Three <laughs> like, years, my God. Yeah, because that was that was what so many people had told us before. And I ended up being there for five. But it's, and I don't think, like, don't go in, th- like, planning on leaving. Yeah, yeah, absolutely not. Like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't <laughs> um, just treat these roles as like, oh, I'm going to get in, get out. Uh, <laughs> That's not helpful. Yeah. I mean, so uh, on my podcast, there's an episode that I did on getting better at being wrong. The things mm. about how to um, how to reduce mistakes is staying along for the feedback to come back to you. Uh, so even though my experience was staying at that first job for six months, yours staying for five years you probably also benefited in very different ways because i didn't get to see the feedback bounce back to me and by feedback i mean um like let's say you have an initiative you tried something the feedback is like seeing the impact of that idea or seeing the impact of that change um there's this uh there was a story nice mind about berkshire uh, hathaway the reason why they are very successful in investments is because there's very, very little turn. People who work at Berkshire Hathaway, they, they tend to be there for multiple decades, which means they are there to see the feedback of every decision that they've ever made. And so now they've learned from that feedback. And now that they, they, that's why like they're pretty solid when it comes to making those investments. They already know what to avoid and what, to look out for. That's a really good point. And I, and I think that's interesting thinking about how long it takes to get that feedback. Because I think in a lot of ways in UX, we do get that feedback fairly quickly. If you're agile, if you're running sprints, right. like you're going to, you're going to see that feedback. Yeah. But in a shorter amount yeah, of time. Like in some cases it's like very short, but like, let's say you have a product launch in product vertical. Probably going to take like a year or two at least to come back and see like, were those initial requirements right? Were our bets of what the MVP should include, was that the right move? Are we, did we get any of the market share in that market at all based on the decision made? So like sometimes, I mean, for bigger picture, more strategic events like that, it takes a lot long for feedback to come back to you. (laughs) Now, I think there's ways to cheat that. That's a good point. I think there's ways to, uh, like, okay, one of my, uh, tricks, which you guys can steal, whatever. I like to call, I like to contact 
and sit with yeah. the sales and ask them, what are the deals that we and why? Because I used to also be in sales and I used to sell, um, I used to sell accounts for uh, Windows Azure back when like cloud computing was starting to be a lot bigger. And our biggest competitor was AWS. And mm -hmm. I already knew all the things like Active Directory, right. uh, oh, their virtual machines are cheaper. Like they're, they have a different billing model. Like I already knew all these features that I was losing customers to. So I echoed that back to uh, decision makers at Microsoft. Like, hey, these are the top three things that I always hear for my deals. Um, and so taking that experience, I now go to, I sit with the sales team. Like, what are the features that we don't have that like just, you know, um, that you lose sales over? So that's one way, that's one way you can oh, that's like so short circuit great. the feedback loop. I don't know why more product managers don't do that. It's like you already see what people are willing to pay for and you already have some feedback on like the features that this deals for. Like, does that not factor into your product? <laughs> like, no, that's so interesting because I've always thought of it the other way around. Of like working with sales for the new features that we oh like like uh, training I mean, them or educating them just launching right yeah. right and and I guess we have gotten feedback from sales usually it's a very large deal that ends up yeah. you know the tail wagging the dog kind of thing mm -hmm. of like, well, we got to get this, you know, major feature out so that such and such can sign. Yeah. Um, yeah. But less about that roadmap side. Yes. So, okay. Maybe the reason why I go to contact sales immediately is, man, okay. The reason I, I know I'd be a great salesperson. I just can't be a salesperson. Uh, I don't want to use the word lying. But, like, sometimes salespeople will pitch things that don't exist yet. And that used to drive nuts. And Especially when we were both on the implementation yeah. side. Because <laughs> then we were the ones who were, like, stuck, were stuck talking to the customer for three months as we're implementing the <laughs> software. And they're like, well, such and such said that this can happen. And it's like, they said, Girl, what now? Yes. Yes, that would drive me crazy. Now I have to go and figure out how to make like, that happen. <laughs> yeah, I hated that. And like, I hated selling features that don't exist, but I also hated being on both implementations and the UX side. Like, you promised them what? <laughs> Why? <laughs> um. Anyways, yeah. I, one, like, my cheat code for UX not that propel their skill like their position company talk to people outside of UX like talk to the finance department talk to sales talk to the business dev like customer support yeah exactly because the thing is I promise you a lot of UX peers are not doing so when you're UX meeting and you're like well, actually, finance said that they're forecasting blah, 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 blah for this product. Like, you come off like a freaking genius. <laughs> 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 well, 
And then you you have advocates yeah. on for you in other areas within the company. 100%. And are able to get other opinions and kind of and also there's a little bit of building your own personal yeah. brand in that That's- too. Yeah. Oh, and uh, on that note, I, I did want to share one story that I have written on Medium about. It was about my first job. And because I was such a person, I always just kind of put myself on like a weird, like lower pedestal than else, um, for better or worse, whatever. But I remember the director was showing something meeting about a current project and the project requirements and I had this question in my head and I thought oh man that's such a dumb question don't ask <laughs> and or, or like don't make that point they they're pro- they probably thought about it and that's why they're not bringing it up uh, just just like absorb well then three weeks later we hire on a UX person and he came in and he looked at the requirements and he made the exact comment I was going to make. And then everyone was just like, oh, applause, applause. Like, you're such a genius. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. My hand, I was like, dang it. I should have up. Yep. <laughs> That's so true, though, of, of being willing to ask those lingering questions of like, huh, something just doesn't make sense yeah. right now. And instead of... I think sometimes we default to, I must be missing something that's obvious. Right. And instead thinking, no. Because the reality is most people are too close to the problem. Or too close to the solution or the space. They've been saying the same thing over and over again for like five years. I mean, one of my favorite things about having a new designer come onto my project is they have fresh eyes. I, because I'm too close to the product, I've already gone, like, so many iterations of the product. And, yeah, maybe we already solved, or maybe we just couldn't solve the product. But I think it's so important. I mean, one of the things we do value is that those fresh eyes. So, um, I think it's really important to speak up. But be humble. Like, sometimes I've spoken up, and I recognize, like, if was more senior and they've already tried that route like yeah you know, I, I don't hear it but like it's it, i think it is important to just speak up like it doesn't really hurt most of the time right or you know what okay i take advantage of the first 30 days because those are the uh that time period is the time any question like no question is dumb they already know you're new so you might as well just cram in as many questions as you can. And um, if you really do feel self-conscious about it, one thing I do, hey, dumb question alert, come your way. <laughs> <laughs> but 90% of the time, it's not a dumb question at all. And in fact, all the other people in the group might be, oh, you know what? I didn't know what that acronym was like. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And like, and I think too, it's, you know, absolute worst case scenario, write those questions down <laughs> and ask your manager, right. ask somebody else after the meeting. Like it doesn't have to be like a big show of curiosity and the need to know. It can also just be, hey, I wanted to pull you aside because in that meeting just now that we were both in, this happened. 
Could you tell me, is that like, am I missing something? What am I missing? Yeah. Yep. I think your manager would actually like hearing that you're paying attention, you're absorbing, you're asking questions, you're thinking critically. It's not a bad thing to ask questions. The other thing I uh, I say is like, if your question sounds really obvious, definitely ask it. Like, I remember <laughs> I pulled I pulled a manager aside. I was like, I uh, okay, you said that this product is generating like millions of dollars, and yet. We can't get access to users. What's up with that? Obviously, we have users, right? What's what's keeping us from interviewing those users? And it sounds so obvious, like such a dumb question, but um, I actually learned a lot. Like, for example, from that conversation, I learned that, oh, there's uh, a lot of mistrust from the sales team to towards the UX and product team. Like, because from a sales perspective, they don't know who you are. They don't know what kind of questions you're about to ask. And if you say something that's going to like make their customer terminate the contract, then that's money that that salesperson is. And so I realized, yes. okay, well, why don't we collaborate with the salespeople and see how we can like talk to these users, but do it in a way where the salespeople also feel protected, you know? <laughs> yes. And that is not <laughs> an uncommon yeah concern yep also for those listening and so and you know plot twist if you have a background in sales or in customer support or other customer facing roles guess what that's an asset in ux exactly for that reason 100 percent. yeah to where the ux team that feels that there's this tension with sales and is maybe concerned with some other ux designers on your team going and potentially yeah. messing up that deal or maybe they have in the past because they just didn't know right they, right your manager um, can have confidence in in you and your ability to you know handle that situation yeah uh, another co- uh common sense thing that i felt was really common sense is like of course customer su- uh, su- customer support would have a lot of information about customers and users but then i remember when i first asked the product that I was working with, hey, have we ever talked to customer support on, about this feature? Oh, no, we haven't. Like, well, why not? Oh, well, you know, customer support, they're going to focus on problem stuff. And then I was like, okay, well, can we talk to them? He's <laughs> like, yeah, but you know, we're trying to focus on like uh, features for like market demand blah 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 we're not really focused on like little problems and so i was like can we just can i just have like two hours just to try it you might be right you might be totally right in the like the insights are not going to help at all but i want to at least try because i've been a customer support rep before we were on the front lines of the users like they know a lot of things that product is not going to know and finally he just like fine okay just two hours that's fine and then by the end of it he was like Holy crap, we just saved weeks of work. I told you. <laughs> well, and I think that's such a smart lesson there of asking for the opportunity, asking why not, and listening. Yeah. And then being able to address their concerns so that, and address their concerns and listen for the concern that they're not saying. 
which is this is going to waste a lot of time yeah. and we have other priorities right now. And oh, hey, by the way, I'm under a lot of pressure <laughs> to get these yeah. features rolled out. Thank you very much. And so saying I'm going to time box this, this is the max amount of time it's going to take me. Let's mm-hmm. just see. So I'm yes. not, you know, dumping a whole bunch of time or energy into this just to totally screw up your roadmap that you've already planned out. A hundred percent. Yeah, I think. Um, and I think this is just healthy just in general in life is to treat everything as an experiment because I didn't I couldn't guarantee uh, the, the types of feedback from the customer support team like I because I didn't know them. I didn't know what they would give me. But whenever I'm doing these initiatives, I always even in my head, I treat it like let's just try it out. I could be wrong. And if I'm wrong, cool. Let, like. Good thing it only took a couple hours. Let's pivot to something else. But let's just right. experiment. I'm trying. Let's see. Oh, I love that. Also, it's kind of a good, like, cover your ass method. Because yes. then, like, you, you're not beholden to the outcome. Like, I just want to try it. If it's a total wonk, like, we can just move on. But I just want to try this. And I think... Okay, I have to riff on this for a sec, because now that you've talked about outcomes, I'm like, this is something that I've been dealing with in my business and what I see a lot of my business friends deal with of how do you balance, of of attempting to balance this difference between, um, you know, I'm planning for success or I want success while also, and these are the steps I'm going to take to get there while also detaching yourself from the outcome? Yes. Yeah, that's a good thing. And that's tough to be like, okay, I'm going to launch this product or this offering, and these are the steps I'm going to take to get there. And I'm committed. I need to be committed to the process, but not committed to the outcome. Of yeah, no matter because, what happens, I'm going to learn right. from it. I'm going to, you know, Ooh, some, I'm going to get something good out of it. Yes. Oh, okay. So there's, I used to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for four years. And a common saying that we always said is you either win or you learn. And so like, even if you fail, that's something else. You're, um, I mean, again, it's kind of like what I was talking about in my first job, like for a lot of UX people, maybe they would have said, oh, man, this this will pull failure on my part. Like, no, it's not. You can learn. You can still get something out of it. And you feel like you could always have ever experience. I know that sounds very... <laughs> <laughs> no, that's perfect. I actually had a friend yesterday uh, call me her woo-woo friend. And I was like, yeah. oh, what? Me? <laughs> like, I've never been someone's woo-woo friend. I feel oh, like that's funny. a lot of responsibility on my shoulders. I need to go meditate. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, and I know this next point is it uh, might be different since you actually do run an business. But another thing I hear from my mentees is they'll kind of really be hard on themselves. Like, oh, well... None of the projects that I've worked on have shipped. None of them have launched. Oh. Like, oh my God, like I just have nothing in my portfolios. You do have stuff 
you have stuff that you worked on, don't you? I'll give you a little secret. One of my mentors, he's been working in software since the 90s. No, uh, not, not He's been working in software since like the early 2000s and been in UX for almost 10 years, right? He confessed to me that not one major project he's ever done. Shit. I was like, what? How's this possible? And he said, the thing is, like, you can only control the parts you can control. What I can control is, uh, did I, you know, do the research to the best of my ability? Um, the tasks map, the, uh, uh, you know, the user journey maps, and all this stuff, the designs, the prototyping. The only thing I can control is, like, those exact things. Like, my part needs to be a tight shit. But I don't have any control over market forces. I don't have control over whether or not the engineers can actually build everything that the requirements. I don't have control over the politics of the company, like project shift, all that. And I also don't have control over, you know, do we have the budget? So why am I beholding, like, I'm, why am I holding my portfolio to factors I have no control of? Exactly. Exactly. And so some, like, yeah, some of my projects have not shipped. Some of the projects on HavanaWin.com, like, they unfortunately did not see the light. Now, I'm fortunate to have a couple projects that did ship launch, but it's like, all I can do is show my best work. Exactly. I don't have control over that other stuff. <laughs> yeah. And the point of your portfolio and those case studies is not to show the work that shipped. Right. It's to show what it's like to work with you, what your process is, and, like, what happened. Exactly. And the reality is, oh, my gosh. Perfect case studies are boring. They are. Oh, yes. Okay. Can I? Oh, <laughs> you and I are going to totally go on a rant because I hate perfect case studies. I hate when it's, like, especially, like, with those, uh, Personas that look like freaking D and D character models. <laughs> it's um when I tell people when I get the feedback on case, I'm like, but what organizational challenges were there? What do you mean, Havana? Like, well, did you have access to users from day one? Did you work with a research? Was your leadership supportive of UX initiatives? Did you have to. Tell me about those things. I want to see how you solve those things. Yes. Because those are the things that are probably happening here. Yes. And so I want to know that you can handle those problems. Because if I see a perfect case study with no problems, I don't know. I'm thinking, Havana, can you handle all the stuff that we have going on over here? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's just a great point because, like, one of my other favorite stories is like, I've had to deal with a lot of obstacles in the past. <laughs> and I feel like um, that's going to be at every company. I feel like every company has like a really stubborn, very opinionated, very cynical developer. And uh, I remember this one time I ran. 
like this developer just shot down every freaking idea I had and also interrupted other UXs like and just like completely commandeered our meetings to talk about why all of our ideas could not work. And I was just like, why? Like all the other UX designers just got so sick of him and they were like talking behind his back. I felt really bad that like this guy was being talked about so much. And I was like, you know, but have you guys ever brought these issues up to him? Have you ever asked him to like change? And they said, no. Like, well, that's weird. You're not even giving him the chance <laughs> to change. So I actually sat him down and I told him, uh, hey, I'm going to be honest. I really value your feedback because you are really good at finding the holes immediately. But it comes off like you're just not willing to work with us. It comes off actually really disrespectful. And I think it rubs people the way. And... I came to learn that the reason why he was so obstinate was because he was a blue sky thinker in the past and he did work on some like really ambitious projects that failed horribly and it got all blamed on his shoulders. Mm. And so now like because of that past trauma was like, whoa, I really like bet on this highfalutin idea without thinking about all the ramifications and it bit me. And so now like Man, I wish you just, like, I now understand you so much more. Like, how right. can we address that concern? Like, maybe UX, like, this is where UX research can help. Maybe we can validate every single idea before we even write a line of code on it. Would that make you feel better? And it's like, yeah, that's absolutely, yeah, let's do that. I've never heard of that. And so it just was like a beautiful moment of, like, just a partnership. It's just like, like, I feel like, one of the things I always tell people is like people are seldom ever difficult on purpose. There's always a reason for it. There's always some sort of like pressure coming up from top or maybe past work trauma that's like catching up. Like with this guy, I felt like now I was his advocate. But also now he was listening to me. Well, I don't want to be obstinate. I don't mean to be difficult. Now I like, hey, okay, well, I'll just like give you a heads up you're starting to do that well and it's it's building that relationship it's finding the common ground and it's opening up the conversation to actually learn more about these people that we work with every day towards this common goal and also that it's just such a great like connection between um oh, as a UX team, how can we help build your confidence back up? <laughs> yeah. To like, so that it, so that you know that it's not all on your shoulders anymore. Yeah. Because that's such a valid thing. I had never thought about that for developers. Yeah. Because totally. I've thought about that with pr product owners of the pressures that they have and the, the business pressures. But I hadn't thought about developers before UX that we're doing and making those decisions on their own and executing on them. That's so yep. much pressure. And also not only have to have the idea and people are paying attention to how your idea is like, um, you know, happening, you're also building it. Right. So, and I, I've noticed that developers get really ambitious and they 
really overestimate their abilities. (laughs) 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 So, uh, another thing I've done is, like, try to bring developers back down to Earth. Because, like, some developers are, like, really cynical, but then some of them are, like, overly optimistic. Like, that's true. Wow, we build a whole um, document viewer from scratch, and uh, we could just do it all. I'm like, but that's a lot to do. <laughs> have you thought about the fact that, like, we don't have an existing style sheet? We don't have this. We don't have that, like, um, sometimes, like, Havana, I'm that developer. (laughs) I just immediately thought of, oh my gosh, Will and I went to Seattle and we came back and I was still working in corporate pre-UX and I was just like, Sunday scaries, like how, how do I, and I Googled like how to, you know, the vacation blues, how do you, you know, deter it? And I was like, oh, make food that reminds you of the place you went to. And so I have the great idea to make ramen from scratch. Fully scratch. Fully scratch. Oh, my God. Noodles from scratch. (laughs) Broth from scratch. Everything. And it's like 9 o'clock at night. And so... (laughs) 9 o'clock at night, Amanda. (laughs) It was stupid. And Will brings it up all the time and was just like, really why funny. did you think we didn't eat until like two in the morning? And it was like, that was so dumb. Funny. <laughs> but that's, I'm that developer sometimes. <laughs> I have these big ambitious ideas and let's just do them all from yeah, scratch. It's, it's very fascinating. <laughs> you wouldn't think that developers would be like that. But I, I do see that developers, uh, for a lot of developers, um, at their nature, they are creative. Mm-hmm. They just know how to like put the blocks together, but that you know a lot of them do want to be creative in like how they solve these problems and things like that. Um, it's something I keep buying. Just... Mm. <laughs> and then like now it helps if they've completely missed like underestimated uh which a hundred percent they will like every time yeah. we do like uh you know, backlog grooming or sprint planning. And these developers like you their essence. You should you thought about <laughs> X, Y, or Z. But if you notice that developers are in the habit of underestimating, now when they do uh, promise the moon to you, like, well, what happened in the last sprint when you said that you were going to finish this form and that is still not done? <laughs> right, right. And being willing to have those conversations and those hard conversations, whether it's, hey, you're coming off a little bit this way, or even the hard conversation of, yeah, okay, but what happened last sprint? (laughs) Like, we're always one difficult conversation away from what we need. Um, Well, Havana, I have one more question for you. Okay. Yes. Okay. So... You're in an elevator. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so someone else walks on the elevator. They're a UX designer and they turn to you and say, and ask you, how can I be happy in my UX career? What do you tell them? Oh, I'm sorry. Can you repeat that question? Of course. So you're in an elevator 
and a UX designer comes on and asks, how can I be happy in my UX career? It sucks that I can't ask follow-up questions. (laughs) (laughs) It's an elevator, Havana. (laughs) Dang it! I mean, can it go up like the 72-story West End in Atlanta? Um, How can I be happy? I think for me, the answer that comes immediately to mind is like pay attention to your energy level. Like, pay attention to the things that really air you. And it could be, like, one part of the process. It could be working on a type of thing. It could, like, okay, so the reason why I say that is, like, for me, working in consumer insurance, I hated telling people I did that. If it was cool telling people that I work downtown, I'm a UX designer. But when I told people, like, what I do, like, I feel like, I almost felt like, but so but uh, meanwhile i was doing aerospace stuff i loved telling people that and i loved (laughs) the impacts of the things i was working on in aerospace like with consumer insurance sometimes i was even telling people dude don't get the plan (laughs) don't get the plan for the dryer it's not like um but then with the aerospace stuff i felt like whoa, the things I'm working on is impacting, like, company, like saving millions of dollars for a company, but also saving lives or preventing, uh, you know, damage from happening. Uh, and I think, like, sometimes people go through the emotions of their jobs, but, like, they don't really pay attention to the things that energize them. And once you do figure out what energizes you, like, what makes you, like, excited to tell people like about your job um what gets you up in the morning when it comes to your job um hanging on to that and then because like i think holding on to that and paying attention to it is gonna help you get through the hard times like there were some hard days uh at the healthcare company i was at but, like, knowing that I was making such a difference in um, medical research, that's what you're right? Okay, it's a hard day today, but big picture, I really like that I'm contributing to medical research. Um, and also, like, walking, like, going towards those things that animate me. You don't have, like, after a while, you don't have to just accept any job. Accept the jobs that, like, energize you. Absolutely. Oh, thank you, Havana. Where can everyone find you on the internet and listen to your podcast and all that? Well, where can't you find me? That's a great question. Uh, You can just Google me and see all the content I do. You can also see all the content on HavanaWin.com. You can find me on Twitter at Havana Tweets. You can find my podcast on Spotify. Uh, There's a... (laughs) There's other podcasts. We'll link it. Places. <laughs> but Spotify, you can look up Make It Happen with Havana and subscribe there. Uh, you can also find me on Medium. I mean, all that stuff is going to be on HavanaLim.com. And of course, uh, link with me on LinkedIn as well. Yes. Yay! <laughs> Thank you, Havana. You're the best. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me back a second time. Yeah, thanks for being back. Thank you for listening to the UX Hustle podcast. To continue these conversations, you can follow us on Instagram at the UX Hustle or join our Slack community through the link in our show notes. If you love this episode, please write a review and subscribe. 